We're just going to get right into it tonight. So if you've got a Bible handy, or if you want to grab one in the back of the pew in front of you, uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 42. Last week we walked through Act 1 of the story of Joseph, and it was brought to a climactic conclusion where basically the unthinkable happened, whereas circumstances for Joseph had gotten worse and worse over his life. He started in a family as the beloved, as the best dressed of the family. Uh, and his brothers, out of jealousy, sell him into slavery, um, make up a ruse to fool their father into thinking that he's been killed. He finds himself a slave in Egypt. And although he does well at that, um, due, due to the um, jealousy and frustration and anger of a woman, he finds himself in prison. And even in prison, not only does he perform admirably, but he gets an opportunity to interpret the dreams of two men, both having high stations in Pharaoh's court. Um, Only after rightly interpreting and prophetically pointing to um, what's going to happen, one being released and one put to death, is he forgotten. It's then that Pharaoh has a dream. Uh, the, um, The court leader, the baker, remembers that he's forgotten Joseph, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then all of a sudden finds himself the second most powerful man in Egypt. And like I said, if last week I said, if we were telling this story, if you were going to do the Hollywood version, we would usually stop right there. Because that's it, he got his dreams, everything's come to pass, right? He's been restored, what was wrong has been set right, but the author of Genesis is telling a different story. And so we open Act 2, reaching all the way back into the past and moving away from Egypt, back into the land of Canaan, to those same brothers that sold Joseph into slavery and his bereaved father. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine that it was in the land of Canaan. So we discover here that the famine that Pharaoh's dream had pointed towards, the one that Joseph had predicted uh, following seven years of plenty, which would be seven years of disastrous famine, it's now started, and we discover here that it's a lot bigger than merely Egypt. And in the land of Canaan, they're also experiencing it. Um, But news gets around that there's grain for sale in Egypt, and so Jacob turns to his sons, all of whom at this point have families of their own, And he says, you can sit here and starve, or you can go to Egypt and buy grain. But it tells us here that he reserves for himself one of his sons he keeps behind, Benjamin. And it's not merely because Benjamin is young, although that's probably the case. 
it's because Benjamin is the last living child of his favorite wife. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, that might be a weird phrase. Um, But Jacob had a wife that he loved, and he had another wife that he did not love as much, and he babied Joseph because of it. Joseph was his favorite because he was the son of his favorite wife. Uh, And then his brothers sold him into slavery. Then Jacob heard that he had been mauled by a wild animal, and assuming that he was bereaved, his daughter then gives birth to another son a son named Benjamin, and in in giving birth, dies in labor. And so Benjamin is the last living connection he has with this wife of his love. And so he doesn't send send him because he feared that harm might happen to him. And interestingly enough, the word here used for harm is a a very rare one. The only other time it's used in the Old Testament, it speaks specifically of a woman who's injured during pregnancy. There's lots of words for pain and difficulty and harm. He chooses this one in communicating to his boys, and I think it's an insight into how he sees the baby of the family. This is important and valuable and young and fragile and all of these things. And so he holds him here, and so it's ten of Jacob's sons, ten of Jacob's brothers who head to Egypt, not knowing whatever became of their brother, head to Egypt to buy grain. Verse 6, now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now, right there, it's amazing that the author doesn't draw more attention to it. Right there, we should be reminded of where this story begins. When young Joseph, the youngest brother, comes to his brothers and he says, hey, I had a dream last night. And I saw all of us having sheaves of wheat, and all of your sheaves were bowing down to my sheaves. And we're told that that's part of a primary reason why Joseph was so hated by his brothers. And he has another dream, and this time he sees the sun, moon, and 12 stars bowing down, um, 11 stars, excuse me, bowing down uh, to him. And here we see, just as his brothers understood it, just as Jacob understood the dreams of young young Joseph, we see 10 of his brothers bowing before him, not realizing that this is their younger brother, Joseph. Now, for context, remember here that 17, sorry, 13 years have passed since they've seen Joseph. And in that, he's gone from being a 17-year-old to a 30-year-old. And so a good deal of transition. Not only that, but he is dressed like an Egyptian, shaved like an Egyptian, and speaking through an interpreter, as we'll find out. And so Joseph, without skipping a beat, recognizes his ten brothers, but they do not recognize him. Now, if you're going to understand what happens next in the story, you have to do some thinking with me. Because it's very easy to read this story and see it as a story of revenge, right? Because Joseph puts his brothers through the ringer. He, he, he conveys this entire plot that feels like just a slightly toned-down version of the Saw movies. It's a psychological thriller. That's what's about to happen. He's really going to, at first glance, make them pay. But that's not what, what's really going on. If that were the case, then the conclusion of it and the fact that Joseph constantly has to leave the room because he's overcome emotionally wouldn't fit into the story. For us to understand what Joseph is about to do, we have to understand a difficulty that we don't always see. You know all those stories that we read and that we watch and that we sometimes tell about the rich and wealthy prince 
who's looking for a bride and realizes the only way he can find a marriage of true love is to hide his rich and wealthy princeness, right? Dress like a beggar and try and basically gain a wife of his own merit. Why, 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 why? Because this other issue makes a fair read on that impossible, right? Now, think of what needs to happen for Joseph and his brothers to be able to be family again. There has to be repentance. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be reconciliation. How hard is it made when the person who you owe forgiveness to has your entire life in their pocket, right? He is the owner, the distributor of all grain. He is the one who has all of the power in this. Would it be that surprising if Joseph pulled off the mask here and revealed himself and said, hey, I'm Joseph, and then said, look, we should talk about what happened 13 years ago. Is it at all surprising, 20 years ago, excuse me at this point, um, is it at all surprising that Joseph recognizes that's not going to work? That by nature of the circumstances, whatever his brothers are going to say, even if they really mean it, you'll never be able to believe it, right? Because there's this huge other issue, the fact of need, the fact of essentially you have to be on my team now. And so what he does is he creates a space to see where they're really at, to go through the paces, to put on his pauper's clothes and see if there's really a possibility of relationship here. And we'll see that as we go forward, but I thought it was worth saying that up front. And so they came, they bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. Okay, so we're not the only ones who see the connection that I just mentioned. He's starting to see his life in the context of these early given prophetic dreams, but there's pieces missing. Here, 10 of his brothers have come and bowed themselves before him, but Benjamin, the 11th, is missing. So is Jacob and, uh, and Jacob's wives. They are unpresent, and so it just reminds us here to give us the trajectory of where the story is going, but also to point to the fact that it has yet to be fulfilled. And so notice uh, verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. Okay, so tactic one, he acts suspicious. He calls them out, and he says, the only reason you're here is because you recognize, like every other nation we're at risk, you're trying to feel out the security of Egypt, right? And they respond, verse 10, they said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies, which I honestly just think is a funny thing to say. It's like, you can check my resume. You won't find spy on there. It's just a weird thing to say. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now pause. Notice what Joseph is accomplishing by his interrogation, right? He doesn't come out and ask them where they're from. He just accuses them of not being who they appear to be, and they start to fill in all the details, 
And so what does he discover here? That his father's still alive, that Benjamin's still alive, and even they reference the fact that Joseph is, quote, no more, right? They don't explain the whole story, but they, they honestly speak to the full reality of their family, family. And so verse 14, Joseph continues, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, pause again. Notice what he's doing here. He gives them a test, and he says, the test will be, I will believe you when I meet the other brother, the one that you mentioned, okay? Now, remember, that's not just to get Benjamin here, although that's part of it. Not only is this Joseph's closest brother, right? But also, there's the dream. There's this reality as well. But more importantly than that, he wants to know how they treat Benjamin, okay? And so he sets up this test, and he says, verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined so that your word may be tested, whether there's truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you were spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he sets them in prison and gives them three days to think about it. Now notice, he makes a change here, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. So first he says, all of you stay, one go. Now after three days, he reverses it and he says, leave one here in my custody and the rest go. We're not really told why this is. Um, It may be that psychologically this is intentional, that he's making changes, that he's unevening the playing field, if you will, There's other things in this that are intriguing in a different way. It may be that the best way to understand this is he's playing this good cop, bad cop game that's very intentional. And so he starts very severe, but then he starts dropping clues that things aren't what they appear to be. What would it be like to be from Jacob's tribe, to travel into Egypt, and hear a head leader say that he fears Elohim? I fear God. Right? Remember that like most other nations in this time, Egypt was polytheistic. It was of many gods and Pharaoh is at the top of the reign. He's already said in the first conversation, by the life of Pharaoh, right? That's swearing by Egyptian gods. And here he says, tell you what, I've changed my mind because I fear God in the singular and in in the language of of the Hebrews, you know, something that they would understand. And so he's he's dropping these hints, and there may be a a pragmatic reason that this is the case too, okay? He's trying to keep all of their families alive, right? He's not trying to make them pay, as I already communicated. Sending one man home is not a lot of food. Sending nine men home and keeping one means that he can keep the family going as long as the ruse takes. For whatever reason, this is the argument he makes. Um, And so he says, verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. 
So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Okay, so once again, they assume that Joseph is an Egyptian. He's been addressing them in Egypt through an interpreter. And so now they turn and they have a little conversation to the side. And notice where they go. Notice what they're thinking about. Whatever is going on here, they feel 20 years later the guilt of what they've done. And they naturally connect the dots. Right? They, they're not so much afraid of Joseph and these circumstances. They're afraid of what we would in a modern sense call karma. They're, they're just... They're like, okay, now we're finally getting paid back for this terrible crime, for selling our younger brother into slavery and telling his father that he was killed by a wild animal. He says, isn't this just coming back to bite us? Isn't this what we deserve? And then um, Reuben here, who, who remember is the oldest, speaks up and he says, I told you guys not to do that. Don't look at me. Now, it's not mentioned here. But remember that while this conversation is going on, somebody has to stay in Egypt. The most likely candidate would have been Reuben, and it seems by him bringing this up, he's basically saying, don't you dare put me here. This is not my fault. I told you in the beginning that we shouldn't have done this to our brother. Uh, And so here he says that. And so, so verse 23 They did not know that Joseph understood him, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. Okay? He hears them having this conversation. He hears the remorse in their voice, and it's overwhelming to him. I can't get around the fact that Joseph is playing a game here. He really is. There's no explaining that away. You won't find a Christian manual somewhere in the Bible that says how to ruse repentance out of somebody who's sinned against you. It's not really that type of thing. But I want you to recognize the difficulty that Joseph feels in playing this role. Continuously throughout the story, he wants to make himself known and bring it all to an end. And so he's so overwhelmed, he removes himself and he weeps. You know, he cleans himself up and he comes back. So... Uh, verse 24, halfway through, he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. We're not told if that's his request or if it's their offer, but Simeon would be the second oldest, okay? Now, what's interesting is um, it may be here that Joseph has just heard Reuben explaining that he wasn't part of things, and so he takes Simeon instead. But it also may be that Reuben's removed himself, and so they offer up Simeon. We're not really told, but I want you to notice the drama, right? It says that he bound him in front of them, right? That's, that's intentional. That could be for later, but he wants to, to paint the picture of this seriousness. So he ties him up, verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey this was done for him. Okay, now we get to phase two, right? Phase one is test them and say, you're going to have to go back, you're going to have to bring Benjamin. Phase two, he gives them all the grain they bought, and then he takes the silver that they bought it with and tucks it back inside their bags, okay? Now, we don't know why he's doing that yet, but keep this in mind. The last time there was an opportunity to get rid of a brother and make a profit, they took it. Right? That's what happened with Joseph. Joseph was being left in a pit while they could figure out what to do with him, and then Judah comes up and he says, hey guys, if we kill him, we don't make any money. 
why don't we sell him to these, you know, Ishmaelites who are coming through, and then not only do we get rid of him, but we all make a nice profit on the side. Now they're about to, without the knowledge of their father, leave another brother behind and open up their bags. There's a prophet there. In fact, let's just make it a little bit worse. Because how are they going to react when they find the prophet? We know because we're going to watch it. They're going to freak out. Okay? They don't know why the money got in their sack, but the idea of going back to Egypt now that they're not merely spies but thieves is not a safe idea. Okay? What's the question he's forcing them to ask? Do you care about Simeon? Is he worth the risk of coming back? Is he worth the losing out on the profit of coming back? These are all things that are kind of swirling around going on here. Verse 26, they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened the sack and gave to his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, and said, what is this that God has done to us? See, once again, their conscience is interpreting this act. It's unthinkable, A, it's unthinkable, A, that this weird Egyptian who's holding one of their brother's hostages has given back their money out of benevolence, which actually we'll find out is the case. But second, it's unthinkable that this is anything less than the direct interference of God. They don't think that Joseph is trying to pull one over on them. They don't think that this Egyptian has it out for them. They assume that somehow, miraculously, God does. Okay, That God has just deposited the money back in the sack to get them in trouble. Okay. I remember watching a long time ago um, a TV show called Becker about a really pessimistic doctor. And his philosophy of life was that life was like a rubber band and every good thing that happens stretches the rubber band. And eventually, God lets it go. And so the more good things that happen to you, the more likely it is to really hurt when you finally get what's coming. That philosophy has a direct view of God and it's one that comes directly, even from a skewed place, directly from a bad conscience. Comes from the place of recognizing that there's some sort of incongruence between us and God. And for Joseph's brothers, there's this specific and heinous and tremendously awful act. But I want you to notice that it keeps coming up. They interpret everything going on in their lives. We're not told so, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if they attribute the famine to being God's judgment. But anyways, they find this, they freak out, and then they come back to Jacob. Verse 29, when they came back to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, remember, echoes, we've been here before. They're away, they come back, a little bit richer, one brother missing. Okay. So when they come back to Jacob, they told their father all that had happened to them, saying, now, when it says that he told them all that had happened, they're trying to say that they're trying to divulge everything, but I want you to recognize there's some clear editing going on when they tell the story. It sounds not as scary as it was. Listen. 
The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the lands, but we said to him, we're honest men, we've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take the grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. They make two very big changes here that are worth pointing out. First, no mention of the fact that they sat in a prison cell for three days. It's not said, it's not mentioned. And the second, he doesn't say, if you come back without your brother, you will surely die, which is what Joseph told them. They say, if you come back with your brother, then you can trade freely in the land. That's called spin, okay? They're trying to soften the blow of what's going on here, but then again, they really do tell the whole story, right? We told him that we had a younger brother. He required the younger brother. Simeon is there actually being held captive in the meantime. They lay all their cards on the table. Um, And then verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid, okay? Now, it's possible here that this is another part of their editing, that they're like, let's, let's not tell him about the money. Let's be surprised as he is when we all find out together. That's not really how the text reads, though. What I think is more likely is that they've been feeding their animals this whole trip out of the same bag, and they didn't realize how bad things really were. And now they open up the rest of the bags and discover that all of the money is present. But once again, I want you to, to now shift posture not how they're feeling, but how Jacob is feeling. If you're going to understand what he just says, you've got to feel the, the sense of deja vu here. Right? When they return without Joseph, they return with a story and an explanation. No younger brother, and suddenly they're a little bit richer. And here, they lay out the whole story, and then suddenly, money! There's money in our bags. We don't know how it got there. I think that makes sense of what Jacob says next. Verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. You cannot say that Jacob knows Joseph is alive or that he knows that his brothers had something to do with it. But isn't it striking here that he says it's your fault he's gone? You've bereaved me of my children. First Joseph, now Simeon, and now you want to take Benjamin from me. Okay, there is intense suspicion here. And so he continues. Uh, Notice his interpretation on life. So their interpretation was, we're guilty. At any moment, we're going to get it. What's Jacob's interpretation of life? He says, all of this has come against me, or literally all things are against me. Okay, he is a true and full-blown pessimist. He looks at all of these circumstances and he just says, this is evidence that the whole world's against me. Okay? Now, I just want you to recognize that although that interpretation as an opinion is totally valid and the feeling and psychology of it makes perfect sense, it's also completely inaccurate. What's happening right now is literally because all things are for him. What's happening right now is literally like what Paul says when he says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Why are they having this weird interaction? Because Joseph is alive. Because Joseph, as we'll read later in the story, has been sent in advance to Egypt to take care of Jacob and his family. But he can't see that. 
I don't blame him for not being able to see it. I'm not trying to criticize Jacob's faith. I'm just trying to point out that when you feel this way, you don't always have all the information. Okay? And so, verse 37, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Okay, so we've been dealing with Reuben already, right? The last time we saw Reuben, he was excusing himself from the plot. He was totally fine, by the way, with killing his brother. He was totally fine with throwing him in a pit and having dinner without him. But he's removed himself. And then now here, he says, Dad, tell you what. If I don't bring Simeon back, you can murder your two grandkids. Really? That's the best that Reuben can think of? Okay, but I want you to notice something deeper about this because it will become important when this whole story resolves. What personal sacrifice does Reuben bear in that? I'd say the loss of his two kids, but he's the one who just put them on the altar. Eventually, Judah is going to do something very different than this, and he's going to say, let it be on my account. That's not what Reuben does. Reuben is willing to let somebody else take more sacrifice. And on top of that, it's just a stupid offer. Because why wouldn't, I mean, what kind of a trade is it to lose a son and therefore well, at least, at least you killed my grandsons too. I mean, it's just an insane offer. But it, why is it so insane? Because Reuben is so self-oriented. He's not really thinking in the way, well, we'll get there. But let's leave it there. And so, verse 38, but he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. He says, I'd just, I just die of crying if I lose Benjamin. And what does he say subtly in that? I don't trust you with my son. Guy who just said you'd be you know, willing to kill your two sons in return. I don't trust you with my son. Now, do you understand the crisis this presents? How do they eat? They have to go back to Egypt. What do they need to go back to Egypt? They have to take Benjamin. Benjamin can't go with them because Jacob says no, but Jacob's stores are shrinking. And so eventually the conversation comes back up again, chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they'd eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Now I don't know why he says it this way, but doesn't it make it sound like it's just a trip to the convenience store? He knows what's at stake here. He's heard what's at stake. We don't have any reason to believe that old age has made him forgetful of the fact that Simeon is waiting in prison and that there's no food without Benjamin. But this is probably just his way of opening the conversation again without owning up to his stubbornness or freely volunteering his son. But either way, verse, uh, verse 3, Judah said to him, okay, put this in contrast with what Reuben did. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you'll send your brother with, our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? He says, this is really all your fault because of your big mouth. Why did you have to mention there was a younger brother at all? But after bemoaning this, he does soften up. In verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? 
What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring, down, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. What does he say here? He says, you're right. Benjamin could die. But if we don't go, Benjamin dies anyways, and us and the rest of your grandkids, our entire fate hangs in the balance here. And then he continues and he says, verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. He says, hold me accountable. He puts himself on the line for his brother. Not his kids like Simeon did, but himself. And he says, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we'd not delayed, we would have now returned twice. He says, let's just get it over with. Let's just rip off the band-aid, right? Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back your money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. I want you to notice here that as has been classic with Jacob, we have a mix of faith and a mix of unbelief. And so he prays that God would go him and he says, if it doesn't work out, that's my fate. I'm already, the world's against me. I've already kind of folded on this hand. And then in the same way, he prays, and then he also says, you know what's a good idea in circumstances like this? You should take a gift, right? Which is the exact same way that Jacob tried to overcome his brother. When it was 20 years removed and murder was on the breath, right? There's a lot of echoes here again. And so he says, take a gift. Notice here that they do have food, but it's not the staple foods. They have pistachio nuts and that stuff. They have stores in these things, and he's even willing to offer it and give it, but grain, the stuff they need to live, the stuff they need to feed their animals, which provides their milk, that's what's at risk. You can't feed, uh, I was going to say cows, but it's probably, probably only limited cattle, but nonetheless, pistachios aren't, aren't good for dairy cows. And so the men, verse 15, took his present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin, and they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So now they're here. They have a gift. They have their younger brother, Benjamin. They have the money from the first purchase that they found in their sacks and enough money to buy more. And they come to Joseph in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. Okay, talk about mixed messages, right? They're, they're just a bundle of nerves when they pull into Egypt and Joseph sees and he says, we're gonna have a party today. Hang out at noon, my house. Verse um, 17, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. I, I can't go on without recognizing the difference in priorities between our world and theirs. And Caesar Donkeys makes the list. I would just think there's more important things right here. 
Um, but nonetheless, they, they assume that he just wants to get them out of public view and off the streets so they can just disappear, so they'll all just be enslaved and forgotten. But, verse 9, they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house before they go in, right? Not, not crossing the threshold until we get some guarantees here. Verse 20, and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us, and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. Once again, a weird little clue. Right here, he doesn't just use the idea of one single God, but the God of your fathers, which is Jacob's favorite way, by the way, to talking about God, the fear of Isaac, the God of my father. And he uses this language and he just says, that's a gift from God. Do you remember how they saw it? Did they see it as a gift from God? No, they saw it as evidence of a curse from God, right? And so he says this, Verse 24, when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water and they had washed their feet and when he'd given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. And so they just, like a, like a basket, right? Like one of those hospitality baskets. They lay all the gifts out so that when Joseph comes in the room, he'll be overwhelmed. They're clearly Jacob's sons. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought, into the house, uh, they brought into the house to him to present that they had... Oh, man. Let's try that sentence again, but this time in English. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with him and bowed down to him on the ground. Eleven sons this time bowing. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Recognize here, he recognizes that his father's getting up in age, and so he's playing a risky game of time by going about this. We're moving in the months now, and so he asks, is your father still alive? Verse 28, they said, your servant, our father, is well, and he's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted, them up, uh, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered the chamber, and he wept there. And so he sees Benjamin, he blesses Benjamin, which once again is totally out of character of the part that he's playing, uh, and then he's just overwhelmed. Remember, he hasn't seen his brother since his brother was just a little baby. And here he is, restored, thinking he'd never see him again. He's sitting there, he's about to have a meal with him, so he's emotionally overwhelmed. He goes to a private place, he weeps, and then he comes back. He washed his face, verse 31, came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, so notice the policy first. Egyptians don't eat with non-Egyptians. And so they set a separate table for non-Egyptian guests. But what do we have in the house of Joseph? We have Joseph who can't eat with his brothers because he's an Egyptian. And then we have the real Egyptians who can't eat with Joseph because Joseph's not an Egyptian. So there's actually three tables, each served separately. But more importantly than that, notice what it says about his brother's table. Verse 33, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. 
Okay, so they get there, there's placards on the table, and all of the sons are sat in order of birth, oldest to youngest. And they look around and they know the odds on this. Remember, this is 11 people to all be put in order. And so they're just struck by it, but they don't know what it means. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. And so what it says here is that he, he serves them well, but he gives a five-time size portion to Benjamin. Now, I want you to recognize that number five means that what's put on that plate is too much for Benjamin to eat, obviously, okay? It is a statement, and it's intentional. In fact, in those times, it wouldn't be uncommon to give a five-time portion to an exalted guest. But I want you to remember the family dynamics here. Benjamin is the beloved of his father, who was already bereaved of Joseph, and now Joseph is showing him favoritism. Okay? Last time there was favoritism for the youngest one in the family, right? It led to all of these things, and so he's testing the waters of where his brother's relationship is. Are they going to despise Benjamin because he's getting this undeserved, granted, but privilege? And so, despite that, they have a good party. When it says that they were merry with him, that means that they had plenty to drink, okay? Chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. Okay, so phase three. He sends them away this time. Nobody's staying behind in prison. They literally see this like a done deal, but not only do they have their money back in their sack, but also his silver cup, and it goes right into the bag of Benjamin. And so, verse 3, as soon as the morning light, uh, morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. And so he sends his servant just an hour later after them and instructs him exactly what to say. And what is he to say? He's supposed to say, how could you repay such evil for the favor, for the good? Yesterday you partied with my master, today you run off with his divination cup. And then he also points out that it's foolish to do such a thing because it's a divination cup. Did you think you'd get away with this as implied in this idea as well? So, verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? They just point out that doesn't make any sense. We traveled all the way back here with enough money to repay you, even though apparently we didn't need to. Why would we now steal from you? And they continue here, and this is where they get themselves in trouble. Verse 8, Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you in the land of Canaan. How then could we steal the silver or gold from your house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And so they say, you look for the cup, wherever you find it, that person is dead, and the rest of us are slaves. Okay? What is that? That's an adamant denial of crime. Okay? They are convinced that nothing's been wrong. But do you notice the echo here? Remember that when Benjamin's mother was fleeing from her father Laban, she stole his household gods. 
And he chased after Jacob and his family. And he said, you've taken my grandkids. We'll talk about that in a minute. But why did you take my gods? And Jacob says the same thing. Nobody took your gods. If you find them anywhere, that person will die, not knowing that his favorite wife has them in her tent. The only way that this plays out differently is that Rachel is able to deceive her father so that the idols are never found. It's not going to go so well for Benjamin. And so one, they do steal and they don't get caught. And this one, they don't steal and they do get caught. And so verse 9, we did that one, 11. Each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And so once again, he follows the birth order, but notice that there's a second intent here, not just to be striking, but also because it saves the reveal for the end, right? Every sack comes up empty except for Benjamin's. We actually saw the same thing in the story with Rachel. It's hers is the last tent. First it's Jacob, and then Leah, and then Rachel's tent. But here they open it, um, verse 13, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Okay. Tearing their clothes is, is the ancient version of a facepalm in this particular situation, right? They just cannot believe that this is the case. I don't think we should carry the idea that they assume that Benjamin has done this because we've already known why they think the money keeps appearing in their sack, right? God is miraculously trying to get them killed, okay? So they're not surprised in one sense to see the cup. They don't even fight it. They just go, oh, let's go, and they all follow behind, Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Now notice, If Joseph didn't know what was going on, that sounds like a profession of guilt, doesn't it? We've been found out, but that's not what Judah's talking about. He's talking about the death of Joseph. He's talking about selling his brother into slavery. And so he basically just says, okay, if God is doing this, if this is judgment, we're not going to fight it anymore. All of us now are your slaves, okay? So verse 17 But he said, that's Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Phase four, okay? Here we're finally getting to the culmination of his plot. Here, the difference is now it's Benjamin who's being left behind. And they all get off free, okay? So the question is, will they deliver Benjamin when they enslaved Joseph? That's the question. Do they still begrudge Benjamin because he's the favorite son? Have they changed at all? Not just do they feel guilty they did it once, but would they do it again in similar circumstances? What if we heighten the case a little bit? Recognize tonight that a primary reason that we don't sin at any given time is because the stakes are too high, because the circumstances aren't just right. In Plato's Republic, there's this argument about what justice is and they have this side story about the ring of Gyges. And the ring of Gyges is basically an invisibility ring. Even the Greeks wondered what it'd be like to have an invisibility ring. And one of the guys at at Plato's party in, um, or sorry, in Socrates' party in the Republic argues, he's like, look, justice doesn't exist when you have power. 
And he says, any of you who had the ring would use it just like I would to do all the same things I would. He just challenges that if you can't get caught, then it would fall away. And that is a true protective dynamic that keeps us out of a lot of trouble. And so it's almost appropriate here that Joseph heightens the stakes because he needs to know not just when the circumstances are wrong and all of the other factors would keep them, but let's heighten it every, let's put everything at risk. Let's, let's give them the cost of their entire lives being slaves to a foreign power and pit that against their brother and see how they do. Notice what happens. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. And so Judah begins to speak. Now here's something that's very intriguing. The speech we're about to read is the longest one in the entire book. Just think of that. You're writing a book, a book that's multi-generational, that has a big intentional point and is trying to tell a story, but the place that you reserve and give the most detail to is in the mouth of Judah? I've told you before that this story that we call the story of Joseph is not really a story about Joseph. Here's the first clue that there's something more going on here. Okay? And so Judah speaks up and he says, let me speak a word. Verse 19, he retells the story. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. I don't know if you picked up on it again, but he's saying the word father a lot. He'll continue to. Verse 23, then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. That's the other word he says a lot, youngest brother. Verse 27, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring him down, down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, I want you to notice how profound this argument he's making is. Effectively, the reason he gives He's about to offer himself in Benjamin's place. But the reason he gives is because his father loves Benjamin more than any of the other sons, and Judah can't bear to see him bereaved of that. Do you understand the change in heart that that reflects? Look, there's nothing, nothing right about favoritism. But I will tell you this, that the only way you get away from the power of favoritism is going to look like this. It's not in changing the other person's mind. It's not in pointing out the, the injustice in the life that you experience will never be overcome, will never be overcome, except like this. He here cares more about his father's mixed up love and what will happen to him than it's lost than the fact that his father's love is mixed up and that has direct bearing on Judah. It's striking, is it not? And so he says this, but he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says next. He says, now, therefore, verse 30, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. 
And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back, then I shall bear my blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant, Judah, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I want you to remember, second, that Judah has personal experience of that evil that he's so afraid of. He remembers what it did when his dad lost Joseph. He lived and endured, and it tells us a few chapters ago that they tried to comfort him and say, look, Joseph's been gone for years, Dad. And he said, I will mourn him till the day I die, right? It ruined his father. He can't put his dad through it again. And so he says, take me instead. Okay. Now, remember that this is Judah who said, instead of, instead of, let's sell him into slavery. It's, Judah was the ringleader of this whole thing. He's gone through such a transition and at this point, not only does Joseph see what he needs to see, and the reason I say not only is because that's clearly a component, but he's not controlling and manipulative. That's not what's going on here. He set a tr- test that they can either pass or fail. He's also not just trying to put them through machinistically to make sure things are right. He cares about his brother. He cares about these things. In fact, we're going to find in a second, his whole view of life and what they've done to him doesn't bear a scar anymore, okay? But nonetheless, this, this is more. This is more than he would ever expect. And so chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And so literally all he can choke out is everyone out now. And then he just loses it. Now, because it's fun. Put yourself in his brother's shoes for just a moment. This amazing speech. First thing he says is everyone out now, which sounds terrifying, does it not? They already thought that an invitation to the house was a death sentence. Now all the witnesses are gone. And then he just starts weeping. It continues. It gets harder for them to understand. Um, Verse 2, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Okay, so he's not tearing up. He is ugly crying, okay? Loud enough that the neighbors hear it. And it continues on, verse 3, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Okay? So even the reveal doesn't make them feel any better right? Which I don't actually think is that surprising. Maybe if they could put pause on circumstances and look back and reinterpret the facts, but all they have is the sudden revelation that their son, that they're feeling, or their brother, that they're feeling all this guilt about is the man who's been putting them through all of this, right? They're terrified by this, and so he restates verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please, and they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So, two things here. Notice he doesn't deny the reality of what they did at all. He says, frankly, you sold me into Egypt. And at the same time, he says, God sent me to Egypt. And when it comes to evil in our own lives, we can fall off either side of that narrow walk, okay? We can come to somebody and recognize the wickedness they've done in our lives and explain it away and say, oh, it was nothing. It's something. 
Okay, this is 20 years of Joseph's life that we're talking about. But at the same time, he sees this bigger picture. And he recognizes that despite the wickedness of his brothers, God's hand was in this. He sees himself as a sent one, as a missionary. He says, God, God's the one that took me to Egypt. It reminds me very much of what Peter says on the day of Pentecost when he's preaching and he talks about the death of Jesus. And he says that you illegally handed over the Messiah to death as God predestined to happen. The two are maintained. All I want to say tonight is that when it comes to the wickedness of other people, you may not be there yet, but that is where God is taking you. Not to the denial of those crimes, but to the recognition that I mentioned earlier from the book of Romans, that everything that enters into your life filters through the hands of a sovereign and a loving God. And Joseph can see the train here. He can see the whole connection of things. That if you hadn't have done this, then I wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house. And if I hadn't been in Potiphar's house, then I wouldn't have been accused of raping a woman. Hold on, I'm not done yet. And if I hadn't been accused of raping a woman, I wouldn't have been in prison. And if I hadn't been in prison, then I would have never been able to interpret the dreams of. And he goes down the line. He sees the whole picture. And he says, this is something that God did, so don't be dismayed. And he continues here. And he says, um, not only did God send me before you, but to preserve your life, end of verse 5, verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. It's only getting started, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive your many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so he just reinforces this thing. And he's going to repeat it because they're going to have a hard time swallowing this, right? They're convinced right now that the only reason Joseph is playing nice is because Jacob's not here yet. And later they're going to think, man, when Jacob dies, Joseph is going to get his vengeance then, right? Which we have precedent for. Because that was Esau's plan. As soon as Isaac's gone, then Jacob gets what's coming. One funeral and then another, right? That was Esau's plan. They're feeling the same way, but we'll get to that next week. So he says all this, he reveals, and then verse 9, Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Now, probably here he's drawing recognition from his original dreams. Remember that it wasn't just the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him or his brothers bowing down to him, but his brothers' sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. He sees those dreams in the context of provision, and he says, God has made me your provider, okay? And so verse 12, and now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it's my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And that, uh, after that, his brothers talked with him. Now notice, it doesn't say that his brothers wept. I, I'm assuming that's just shock, okay? 
Like I said, they still have some fears here. But Benjamin can't believe he's been reunited with his brother. And so they weep and things here are being restored. Verse 16, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your fathers and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Now this shows once again the high regard that Joseph has in Egypt. Pharaoh's so excited about this that he doesn't just say, come and I'll give you land. He sends out a royal procession. He sends the wagons and the chariots so that they have an easy travel into Egypt. And then he stresses here, I'm going to give you the best. And he basically says, leave everything else behind. Forget about your tents and your houses, even, even your flocks if you have to. I'll, I'll restore it all here. It's an incredible invitation. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And so once again, he honors his closest younger brother. 23, to his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And the reason, just an aside, because I learned this this week and I didn't know it, the reason why it distinguishes there between the male and the female donkeys is because donkey milk is a thing, which I did not know, okay? And so that's like sending ox to move the carts and cows to milk, okay? He continues on, verse 24, he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. And why does he feel the need to add that? I don't know. It may be, because the word quarrel is pretty broad, he may be actually telling them not to allow anything to go sideways, not internally, but externally. Just safe travels. Don't allow anything weird to happen. Um, But most likely here, because of his brothers and the fact that he's seen them constantly arguing about whose fault it was that Joseph has just spent 20 years in Egypt, that's probably what he's saying. It's the equivalent of saying, bury the hatchet, guys. This is done. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he'd said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So, verse 1 of chapter 46, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. And so here as he gets to Beersheba on the way to Egypt, but still in the promised land, he offers sacrifices to the Lord, and then he has this vision, and basically he gets permission to go to Egypt. Remember, he was to be dwelling in the land of Canaan, and this is not going to be a vacation. Jacob will die here. Joseph will die here. There'll be hundreds of years until Israel returns, which is, it it appears, different than the promise. And maybe Jacob is seeing, seeing his son and the promises of God in tension here. 
And he's, he's stuck. He doesn't know. And so God just reaffirms, I'm doing this. This is my plan. I'm going to take care of this. The blessings are still intact. He says, once again, I will make you a great nation. And then he adds this really intimate statement that goes directly to Jacob's heart. What does he say? He says, I'll bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. In other words, your son, who you've been convinced for 20 years is dead, he'll be there when you die. He'll be sitting right there as you pass away. It's, it's just a beautiful promise of redeemed time with his son. Verse 5, Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods in which they gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And so they relocate, and it gives us here the big list of everyone that goes into, Israel, or into Egypt. But it's worth mentioning here that this list is clearly more than the people in these carts in these story. Okay, This is a broad statement. Well, how do I know that? Because at the end of the list, Benjamin has 10 sons. Okay, Some of those sons are born in Egypt. Uh, because he's going to include Judah's two sons that we already know are dead in this list. Okay, And so what he's doing here is more general. He's, he's tying up the story with the family generation. There's a sense where the story is coming to an end and the credits are rolling, okay? That's, that's what's really going on here. But nonetheless, we're given a list here of those who came into Egypt. We'll get um, the opposite of this when we start the book of Exodus. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel, verse 8, who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palo, Herzon, Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Korath, Merai. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Herzon and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. So he starts with Leah's tribe. And then it continues, verse 16, the sons of Gad, Ziphon, Haggai, Shun, Ezbon, Eri, uh, Ardodi, Reli. These sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, uh, Ishvi, Beria, and Sarah, their sister. And sons of Beria, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Lapin gave to Leah, his daughter. These she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. These are the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. There's another clear mark that this isn't the list of the people on the carts, right? Because Joseph is still in Egypt with his wife and his two kids. But they're included on the list here because it wants to talk about the totality of the tribe of Israel. Uh, verse 21, the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. And these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons. Uh, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. 
and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And so he makes some adjustments. He adds in the people who aren't present. He gives us the final total of 70 people. Now, this is intriguing, and we'll just uh, leave it here, but it's worth noting that when Israel comes out of Egypt, we're talking about millions of people, okay? They go in as just 70 of 12 closely related brothers and their families, and they return. Most uh, conservative estimates I've seen are between two and three million people, okay? And so the reason I mention that is because what happens in Egypt is like an incubator, God takes these 70 people and he moves them towards being a great nation. And if you read ahead and you read uh, chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, it's just about babies. Okay, that's the whole point of chapter 1 of the book of Exodus. Um, But more on that when we get to Exodus in a few weeks. Let's finish off this chapter and finish off tonight. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And so now Joseph is reunited with his father. And it's, it's very subtle there. It's not very detailed, but it does point out that this interaction was a long one. That he fell on his neck, that they embraced one another for a long while. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Now, there's something subtle here that I want to point out, and to be honest, I didn't see this in any of the other comment or any of the commentaries I read this week. I'm not sure where I got it, but it makes a lot of sense to me, so take it with a grain of salt. Joseph keeps talking about the land of Goshen. Pharaoh was talking about the best land in Egypt. I don't think those are the same places, Okay. What Joseph coaches his brothers to do here is when you come before Pharaoh, explain that you're shepherds and that that can't change, that you've always been shepherds, that your father's fathers were shepherds, here are all your sheep, and he will put you in the land of Goshen. Why? Because Egyptians don't like to be near shepherds, okay? This is an isolation policy. Joseph knows enough about Egyptian culture and he knows enough about what God is doing in Israel that he intentionally keeps them in a profession that makes distance and puts them in the outskirts of the land, okay? This seems to be intentional. And so he coaches them through this because he knows that Pharaoh's gonna say, come on, you can have the best and Joseph doesn't think that's a good idea. And so he's got a plan And remember, this is Joseph the strategist, Joseph who just brought the entire nation of Egypt through a seven-year famine. It's this Joseph. He's got a plan, and so he informs his brothers of the plan, and we'll see how that comes out. I want to just again point out, the story's not finished. Like, now we're clearly through Act 2. The curtain should drop, and we should all applaud, reunited, and it feels so good. It seems like we're done. We're not done, because this story is not about only Joseph, and it's not just about a a seven-year famine. And what happens next week, which you'll have to come back for, is to me the highlight of the entire book of Genesis, okay? It's 
tremendously exciting because we find out that there's way more going on than we thought. That this isn't just God taking care of a single family. That this isn't just God dealing with a famine because let me point something out to you. That the self-same God who used the evil of brothers selling their brother into slavery for good, the famine's in his pocket. It's not like, oh shoot, there's a famine. Israel's not going to survive. I've got to come up with a plan. That's not what's going on here. He's intentionally brought them to Egypt for a reason. And that's for the Exodus. He's fulfilling the promise that he gave Abraham chapters and chapters ago when he said, I'm going to take your children into a foreign land and they're going to be oppressed and then I'm going to bring them out. But even more than that, there's a reason why what's about to happen in Israel's history and what really begins right here becomes the paradigm for salvation in the New Testament. The Exodus is the picture that God paints to explain what we need as human beings and what he's doing. And we start to see that even before we open the book of Exodus in the final chapters of Genesis, which we'll cover next week. So now that you have to come back, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight, and thank you for um, just these truths that, that are, are hard to swallow because there's a little bit of complication to them. They're bigger than us. And so this truth that uh, evil that comes into our life is truly evil. It's not an illusion. It's not fake, and it's not okay. And yet it's not the final reality, and it's not the totality of truth. There's also a sovereign God who is using those things for our good. They're not detours. They're not distractions. They're not interruptions in the plan. They are the plan, and so we can trust that you'll be present and that you'll bring about them for your good purpose. And thank you for this other truth, Lord, that for there to be restoration in relationship, there really does have to be repentance. There has to be confession. There has to be change. Um, And at the same time, we should be ready and willing like Joseph to forgive. We should be actively pursuing reconciliation. Joseph doesn't just say, if they really recognize me and if they figure it out, if they put all the pieces together and if they prove to me, but instead he just lays out this opportunity for them to do so and then he takes it and he runs with it. His forgiveness is full and final and complete. And I pray, Lord, that that would be true in our lives, too, that we would not be so comfortable with walking away from broken relationships, but that we would seek for them to be restored, knowing that because of your tremendous forgiveness and because of your ability to change people, that we really can experience restoration and reconciliation, not just with one another, but with you. We thank you for that truth. We pray that you'd help us to stand in it this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.